Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Today we're starting a new teaching series to kick off the new year. The teaching series is called You in Five Years. I want to begin this morning by just simply asking you a question, and it's a very important question. Who do you want to be in five years? Now, this is a really important question, and the the challenge is that many of us can just kind of coast through life. We just kind of drift through life without any maybe visions or goals or, or aspirations. You know, there's an old adage that says, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Have you heard that statement before? Uh, the reality is, in other words, if you have no goals for your life, then do not be surprised if you have no results in your life. Anybody can aim at nothing and anybody can hit nothing. However, if you have a life vision that can turn into goals and then into plans, and those into practices, that can be a life that can produce great results, even incredible results. So do you have a vision over your life? Who do you want to be in five years? The question is so important that I actually want us to take a moment and think about it. You know, it's very, you know, in our hectic, busy, crazy lives, it's very seldom that we actually get the opportunity to just sit and meditate, and think, and contemplate. Who do you want to be in five years? I want to sit in silence for just a moment and let you think about that question. I want you to dream. I want you to imagine. I want you to consider. Who will you be? Who do you want to be in five years? Take a moment. You know, some of us, when, when we're asked the question, we, we often think about the things we're going to be doing in five years. Maybe for some of you, you thought about going to school. You thought about where you'll be living. You thought what, about what kind of job or what kind of career you have. Maybe you thought about the relationships you'll be in or the relationships that will be around you. Some of you considered your goals and you considered your accomplishments. But we, what we don't often think about is the most important part of the question. And it's found in the first word of the title of this series. It's the word you in five years. Who will you be in five years? In other words, 
What kind of a person will you be? What will your character be like? If somebody were to examine your life, what would they say about the virtues that are important to you? What about the quality of your soul? You in five years. And listen, hey, it, it matters if you finish school. It matters if you have a job or a car or a house. Your health matters. Your relationship matters. Your accomplishments matter. But what matters most in life is who you are becoming. Because that part of you affects every other part of your life. And that part of you goes with you on the journey through every part of your life. So the question is, who are you becoming? You know, I think that um, sometimes when we look in the mirror, we don't always like the person that we're becoming. You know, our, our friend Matthew didn't like who he had become. When he was a young man, he, he came with his opportunity, he was presented with his opportunity, a very lucrative business opportunity. And he learned that he could make a lot of money very quickly. So he, he found out, you know, if he just said yes, he'd have a big house, he'd have servants, he'd have an endless supply of food and wine, he'd have prestige, he'd have power, luxuries, and parties. There was just one catch. To get all of that, he would have to betray the people who were closest to him. But he was young then, right? And when you're young, you're success-driven, you're eager, you want to to succeed and he was hungry so he took the job not fully understanding how ultimately this job would come back and bite him see if you know matthew's story you might remember that he's was a young man living in the nation of israel over two thousand years ago and he was from this region in israel that was called capernaum a small community um, and uh, it was filled with devout jews and like many small towns everybody knew each other and most people were kind of related way back in their history. At this time in the history of Israel, it was under Roman oppression, Roman occupation. The Romans had conquered the nation. They'd stationed garrisons of soldiers throughout the nation to kind of maintain control. And not only that, but they were funneling funds out of the nation to pay for their vast armies and their world conquest. So what they did was in the nation, they set up these people that were called tax collectors who would receive money from their people in order to pay for all of that. So they hired Israelites to be these tax collectors. And the Israelites ended up doing the dirty work for them. Being a tax collector was good money. But being a tax collector came with a cost. You became an outcast among your people. Now, see, there's two basic problems with this uh, profession of being a tax collector. The first problem was that you found yourself being in contact with Gentiles all the time. Because you were collecting money with, with Roman soldiers, and as well as you were touching money all of the time, you were always contacted with, in contact with the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, of course, were not part of covenant, God's covenant people. And if the Gentiles weren't part of God's covenant people, then they were considered sinners because they were outside the law by default. And because they were outside of the law by default, if you came in contact with a Gentile, you were unclean. But not only that, tax collectors were seen as enemies of Israel. What have they done? Well, they collaborated with the Romans against their own people. If Rome was the enemy, then tax collectors were the enemies. So like the Gentiles, tax collectors were lawbreakers. Tax collectors were sinners. And oftentimes you'd hear it in the language of people in that day. They wouldn't just say sinners. They would say tax collectors and sinners. It's like it was a mutual category that was kind of lumped together. 
And so the religious leaders of that day declared all of the tax collectors as outcasts. And Matthew was a tax collector. People were taught, you know, don't, don't come into contact with tax collectors. Don't talk to them. Don't associate with them. Don't do business with them. Tax collectors were thrown out of the synagogue. They weren't allowed to come in and to pray and to read the Bible and to, to be part of the covenant community of Israel. They were basically just completely cut off from their people. This was the life that Matthew had chosen at a very, very young age. And we're first introduced to him in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9 and verse 9. I just want to read it for you this morning. Here's what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, oh, let's go back. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, as Pat, Matthew sat there, I thought about this. As Matthew sat there at the tax booth, you had to wonder, did he like the person who he had become? I mean, it was a pretty lucrative gig. I mean, not, not only was he a tax collector, but he was a special type of tax collector. He was actually a customs official because Matthew worked along the trade route that coming up from the lake, going from the road into the rest of Israel. So he was able to make a lot of money, sometimes even skimming off the top uh, because he was in this specialized form of tax collection. But I got to imagine and I got to think that there were probably times when Matthew felt pretty lonely. He probably grew weary from the insults of people. He hated people like avoiding eye contact with him or going to the other side of the road when he was walking down the street. He probably secretly longed to be back at the synagogue, to hear the Torah read, to, to pray with his own people and with his family. But he was cut off from Israel and his God, and now he was trapped. There was, there was no going back. Nobody had opened the door for him, even a crack, to come back to God and come back into the kingdom. So he had a fistful of dollars, but he had a life filled with regrets. And sure, he maxed it pretty good. I mean, he maxed it with work and parties and good times. But the reality is, is that when, when he was alone with himself, the loneliness would settle in. And you've got to imagine that sometimes he even wrestled with self-hatred. He wrestled with self-loathing. He did not like the person who he had become. And I wonder this morning if this sounds familiar to any of us here. I can imagine in a room of this size that there are many of us here who have felt just what Matthew has felt before. I know that in my life I've felt that as well. But you see, here's the thing. Matthew had no idea who he would become in five years. Because one day, Jesus showed up at Matthew's tax booth. And he struck up a conversation with Matthew. And we're not told about how long they spoke. We just kind of get the summary here in, in the text. But what we do know is that Jesus, in this moment, smashed through social barriers, religious barriers, political barriers, with just two words. Follow me. That's all he said. You see, religious rabbis, the thing of it is, obviously, they don't talk to, uh, don't talk to tax collectors. They don't, they don't welcome them. And they never invite them to become disciples and followers of them. Now, Matthew at that time, I mean, he'd likely heard of Jesus before. I mean, he was living in Capernaum. Jesus had kind of set up shop in Capernaum. Capernaum was his base of operations at the time. 
And he probably heard the rumors about this, this amazing rabbi who was going from town to town, performing miracles, teaching powerful words. I mean, he was calming the storm. He was healing this leper. He was giving blind man sight. He'd heard about this Jesus. And he may have even spotted him time and time again while he was there in Capernaum. So Jesus was, you know, was, was not suddenly some guy who just appeared and said, follow me. There was a bit of a relationship. How did Matthew respond? It's interesting. It says in the text here that he stood up and he followed Jesus. And you got to think about it. This was no small decision. I mean, he had a lucrative career. He was super wealthy. If you read about his story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, it says that he left everything and rose and followed him. So he absolutely walked away from everything. He walked away from his career. He walked away from his power. He walked away from his wealth. He walked away and he followed Jesus and he became a disciple of Jesus. And then he committed his life to learning from this teacher and modeling his life after him. At this point in the story, okay, and this is really important, Matthew did not fully know who Jesus was. And when we have the advantage of hindsight, we can look back and we can see the whole story, right? From the beginning to end. We know Jesus was the Son of God. We know that Jesus was the Messiah. We know that Jesus would die and be resurrected and, and would ascend to heaven. At that point, Matthew had no idea. All he knew at that point was that Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. And that Jesus had given him a second chance at life. A chance to begin again and become a better version of himself. That's all he knew. Well, what happened after that? Well, let's keep reading the story. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what do you do? What do you do when you experience the grace of God? What do you do when you are suddenly transformed and welcomed into this new covenant community? Well, you want to tell the whole world about it. So what did Matthew do? He hosted a huge feast. And he probably figured, hey, here's the thing. I mean, if Jesus accepted me, being who I am, then maybe he's going to accept my friends. Maybe he's going to accept the people that I actually associate with. So why not give them a chance to encounter Jesus? And so that's what Matthew did. Now, you'll notice who's on their guest list. I mean, it's, it's tax collectors and sinners, which probably even includes Gentiles, the rejected, the outcasts, and of course, Jesus and his disciples. But then notice who wasn't on the guest list. There were no religious leaders there. There were no scribes. There were no Pharisees. And the truth is, if, if, they, if Matthew had actually extended a, 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 an invite to them, none of the religious would have shown up. Because if you know anything about the Pharisees, you understand that the Pharisees were, were um, uber-focused on keeping the law, right? And they not only kept the law, they also created a whole bunch of other rules and regulations on top of the law. This was basically their interpretation of the law. But their interpretation of the law, these additional rules and regulations, um, they had basically put in equal value as the law itself. They were the same importance as the law. And many of the rules that the, the Pharisees were hyper-focused on were Purity laws, cleanliness laws, cleanliness laws, and food laws. So you can imagine that a Pharisee is not going to show up at a tax collector's party. It would, it would probably make him ritually unclean. I mean, he'd, he'd be on the verge of a panic attack, panic attack the whole time he's there. Like, I mean, is the food kosher? How was the food purchased in the market, marketplace? Were the utensils cleaned? Um, all of these questions would be going inside, on inside of the Pharisee's mind. Um, It'd be like locking a germaphobe in a gas station restroom that hadn't been cleaned for about six months, if you can imagine. 
That would have been going through the minds of the Pharisees. And so, of course, if Pharisees were invited to the feast, they wouldn't show up. But more importantly, in that culture, and this is true in Middle Eastern cultures even today, to eat at somebody's house was a sign of intimacy and acceptance and of welcome. Meal sharing in that culture was sacred. And because it was so sacred, you would never invite a sinner or a tax collector to come in and to enjoy a meal with you. And of course, when you read the text and you read the story, you can understand now why the Pharisees were grumbling to Jesus' followers. And it's interesting. They, they didn't grumble to Jesus. They actually grumbled to the followers. It's as if they were trying to undermine Jesus to all of his followers. They were trying to say to them, hey, you know, have you ever thought about this? I mean, your rabbi is associating with tax collectors and sinners. He's actually eating with them. What kind of a rabbi would ever do such a thing? And, you know, when, when I think about this, okay, I, I think about my own life. And I ask myself the question, I ask myself the question, what kind of people do I spend my time with? Who, who are the people that I allow to come around my dinner table? Who are the people that I welcome into my, into my inner circle? Is it just kind of the people who are like me? Is it just church people and Christian people and, you know, people who kind of, kind of got themselves cleaned up a little bit or share the same values as me? Who are the people that are around my dinner table? Who do I practice hospitality with? And you know, Crosspoint, this is, this is exactly why we host Alpha at Crosspoint. Because we have experienced the grace of Jesus who has welcomed us and invited us into his family. Because of that, we, we want to give others the opportunity to discover them. It's our very own Matthew-like party, right? We're inviting people to come and to, be, uh, to discover Jesus. There's a meal together. We watch a video. We discuss what we've learned. And it's done in an environment that is open, that's non-confrontational, that's welcoming. And it's a chance to just kind of taste and see. Just discover who Jesus could be. So I'm wondering if, as a community, you know, when we're thinking about this coming up, and I so appreciate um, Andrew and Megan's leadership in, in this and um, just the conversation we had this morning. But I wonder if I could challenge you this morning. I wonder if I could ask you to really pray. I mean, not just give a nod to it, but to, to really pray. And ask God and say, God, is there somebody who I could invite to Alpha? Is there somebody that I could invite to the table to share a meal, to experience welcome and hospitality, and maybe discover a bit more about Jesus. Can we all agree to do that together? Can we all agree to just pray into this uh, in, the, in, the, in the weeks ahead as we move towards that? Well, let's finish the story. Let's, uh, let's, let's look at the last verses. Verse, uh, verse 12. But when he heard it, so Jesus, when he heard all this, right? remember they're, they're grumbling, they're mumbling, okay? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here he's, he's quoting the prophet Hosea, Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus here, he's responding to the Pharisees' question. And he's saying, you know, they're asking, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? And his answer is this. They knew they needed my help. They actually know that they're far from God. They actually know that they need spiritual restoration. But the problem with the Pharisees is the Pharisees are just blinded by their own self-righteousness. They don't think they need a doctor. After all, they were the righteous people of the day, weren't they? They were the rule makers, and they were the ones who kept their own rules. 
But it's really important to grasp this. Jesus isn't actually saying the Pharisees are righteous, okay? He simply used the term because that's how they would have referred to themselves. They would have referred to themselves as righteous. In fact, if you read the Gospels, there are so many instances where Jesus actually calls the Pharisees' righteousness into question. If you get the chance today, fast forward to Matthew chapter 23, read the seven woes. These are the woes that Jesus has against the Pharisees and their own practical righteousness. And he points out everything that's wrong with their righteousness. So Jesus is not saying, okay, the Pharisees are righteous. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that the Pharisees perceive themselves to be righteous. And because they perceive themselves to be righteous, they don't think that they need me. They don't need a doctor. So the problem with the Pharisees was they were proud of their exterior performance, but they misdiagnosed their own condition, and their righteousness was only skin deep. And instead of showing compassion to other people and helping them move towards God, they shut the doors to the kingdom of God in people's faces. But Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. Jesus was different than the Pharisees. Jesus came to call sinners to himself. He came to call people who have an acute awareness of their spiritual condition. Those who feel far from God and want to find their way back to him. Not the healthy, but the sick. Not the righteous, but the sinners. Guys like, well, Matthew the tax collector. Now Matthew had no idea that following Jesus would radically change his future trajectory. Who would Matthew become after just five years of following Jesus? Who would he become? Well, as the story goes, Matthew took up with Jesus. He followed Jesus. He became part of Jesus' traveling entourage that was going about throughout the region, performing miracles and, and ministering to people. So he watched Jesus. He learned from Jesus. And he began to model his life after Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine spending all day with Jesus, from breakfast till bedtime with Jesus, watching him, observing him, being in conversation with him? Do you think that would radically change your life? Well, it radically changed Matthew's life. And as the story goes, when, G when it came time for Jesus to actually select his disciples, Jesus took this moment to choose the 12, okay? These would be the apostles who one day would lead the church. Matthew was one of the 12. We find this in, in Matthew chapter 10. He called them to his 12 disciples. The names of the 12 apostles are, and he lists them out. And verse 3, who was there? Matthew, the tax collector. He became one of the 12. But of course, who were the 12? Well, the 12 were brought into Jesus' inner circle. They were his confidants. And they would eventually become the apostles that lead the church. So Matthew was really part of this tight-knit group who followed after Jesus and who Jesus actually confided himself to. He was there at the Last Supper. He was one of the guys that fled when Jesus was arrested, one of the disciples. But even though he fled, Jesus restored him. Jesus appeared to Matthew, one of the 12, well, the 11 by then, okay, after the resurrection. Matthew was on the mountain when Jesus gave the Great Commission. Matthew was among the disciples, the apostles, who went to the upper room and prayed until the day of Pentecost. Matthew would have saw the day of Pentecost. Matthew saw the rapid expansion of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Matthew was pulled into, in just five years, into this massive change that was happening, not only in his own heart, but in the world that he lived in. He was caught up in it. 
Matthew had no idea how two words would radically alter his life in just five years. And the two words were this. Follow me. Follow me. He responded, and it changed the trajectory of his life. And here's the most amazing thing. Many years later, decades later, Matthew sat down, and he wrote the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end. The Gospel of Matthew that, that, that shows the whole life trajectory of Jesus from his birth all the way to his ascension. Matthew wrote that. This gospel would become part of the word of God for the people of God. This gospel would be read by millions of people, transforming billions of lives. It would be part of the best-selling, most-read book of all time. And I bet you, I guarantee that if you sat down with Matthew, as he sat there at his tax collector's booth, and he said, Matthew, I want to tell you what's going to happen in the next five years. Or Matthew, I want to tell you what's going to happen in the next 30 years. Matthew would have laughed in your face. Because in that moment, he had no idea what would happen by simply responding to two words. Follow me. You know what Matthew's teach, story teaches us this morning? It teaches us to never underestimate what Jesus can do in your life over time if you follow him. So I want to return to just the question that we began with this morning. Who do you want to be in five years? You know, we're just a few days into 2020, right? And like Matthew, I think that Jesus this morning is calling us to follow him. And he invites us, each and every one of us, to surrender our lives to him. To, to be committed to becoming like him. To allow him to shape and to, to mold us. See, here's the thing. God is deeply concerned about who you are becoming. And God wants you to become the best version of yourself. And when I say that, I don't mean the Oprah Winfrey-eyed version of that. I don't mean the self-health, hyper-autonomous, um, create-my-own-future type of way of saying that. When I say that, I mean the best version of yourself is who God created and called you to be. You were created in the image of God. God wants to restore you to your true calling. He wants to transform your life from the inside out. He wants to shape your character and your virtues. He wants to shape your habits so that in every way, you become like Jesus. That is God's great, overarching, governing goal of your life. That you would become a beautiful expression and reflection of the living God in this world. That's quite a high calling. I mean, did you know that you were created and called to be like Jesus? Let me just give you a couple examples from the New Testament. Paul writes in Romans 8, 29. Here's what he says about the church, the people of God. He says, for those whom God he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's another example. Paul wrote this to the church in Galatia. Here's what he said. My little children, for who I am again in the anguish of childbirth. I don't know how Paul knows what childbirth feels like, but he's maybe just using it as a metaphor. But he says, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is just saying, you know, I, I love this church so much. I feel it so much in my heart. I have such anguish inside of me that I just want them to become more and more like Jesus. That's how important it is. And, and I think about this, and it's just mind-blowing to consider that the greatest vision that God has over my life is for me to become like Jesus. He is more concerned about who I am becoming than what I accomplish, or where I live, or what I own, or what I post, 
or what I wear or who I surround myself with. He is most concerned about who I am becoming. And so I have to wonder, am I becoming more and more like Jesus? Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more holy? Or more, more compassionate or, or, or more generous or more courageous? And what about you? Who are you becoming? Who do you want to be in five years? And I think like Matthew, or with Matthew, Jesus is saying two words over each and every one of us this morning that can radically change the trajectory of our lives if we take them seriously. And those two words are, follow me. Just, just surrender your life to me. Let me transform you to become more like me. And see what happens. Just see what happens in five years. Now, some of you might be here today, today and you say, you know what, I don't, I don't deserve to follow Jesus. Why would he ever call me? And let me ask you this question. What, what do you think is the prerequisite to become a follower of Jesus? You know, we, we live in a world of prerequisites. We have prerequisites all around us. I mean, if you want to study engineering in a university, prerequisite is you probably need to take uh, physics and calculus. If you want to be an NFL wide receiver, the prerequisite is you probably got to run the 40 in under five seconds, probably somewhere to closer to 4.5 seconds. If you want to drive a car, you need to take a driver's test and pass it. I mean, you could do it illegally, but technically, if you want to drive a car, you have to pass your driver's test. What is the prerequisite for becoming a follower of Jesus? In the text today, there is one prerequisite. You have to admit that you are a sinner. Because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, right? Jesus came to call what? He came to call sinners. So you have one prerequisite. In other words, admit that you make mistakes. Admit that you do stupid stuff. You've all fallen short of what God wants. And I don't know about you, but I've got a master's degree in failure. Okay? I blow it all the time. Is there anybody else here this morning who meets the prerequisites of being a follower of Jesus? Anybody want to show your certificates? Okay, good. You're in good company. You are precisely the kind of person who Jesus came to call into his entourage of disciples. Isn't that good news? Now, you might be here today, and some of you, and you might say, yeah, but I failed before, and I'm really afraid to try again because I think I'm just going to fall flat on my face. Let me ask you something. Do you think that Matthew got it right every time? Do you think that he was just kind of suddenly instantaneously transformed? I'm confident that Matthew made tons of mistakes along the journey. And how do we know this? Because Matthew ran away when Jesus was arrested. Matthew was a failure, even when Matthew was a disciple. And here's what we know to be true, is that God's grace is for every hour of the journey, not just the moment you first believed. The prerequisite still applies, and so does the invitation to follow him. You don't graduate from grace. You live in grace. You live by grace in every part of the discipleship journey. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Toronto Airport, and I was waiting for my flight uh, home to Edmonton. And, and before we boarded, uh, the flight attendant spoke over the announcement and, uh, you know, over the loudspeaker. And, and she said, uh, we just wanted the passengers to know that uh, we've changed the plane. That we will no longer be flying in this type of plane. We're going to be flying in this type of plane. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I, I sure hope I get to keep my seat um, on that plane. 
Um, so I'm, I'm the type of guys, I, I, I wait till the very last minute to get on the plane. I just think there's no reason for me to stand in line. And there's, I have no desire to sit on the plane longer than I need to. So I'm one of those guys who just kind of sits and waits until the very end. There's a few people left in line. Then I finally get in line and I, and I board the plane. I don't use overhead luggage or whatever. Anyway, so I did that. And when I got up to the station, I said to her, I said, you know, I, I heard that uh, we've changed the plane. I want to ask you, have, has my seat changed? Because I booked an aisle seat uh, a few months ago when I booked this flight, or a few weeks ago when I booked this flight. And she says, oh, yes, it has changed. We've put you into the middle seat on the plane. And I said to her, I said, well, um, I don't, I don't want to be troublesome, but I think that would be really problematic. Not just for me, but actually for my fellow passengers. Because if you look at my shoulders... Um, I'm going to be squeezing somebody into the window, mashing somebody into the window, and crushing somebody over into the aisle, and they're going to get hit by the cart. So I booked my, you know, I booked my flight in advance. I booked an aisle seat. Is there any way you can change it? She said, she looked at me, she thought, yeah, that's true. <laughs> she says, you go stand over there. So I went and stood over there, and then there were a few more people that kind of went through the line, and that was the last one. And then and she looked at me, and she says, you follow me. Follow me. Okay. So I followed her. We went down the ramp towards into the plane. We got in the plane. She kind of talked to another flight attendant. And she said to me, okay, follow me. And we went down. And I thought to myself, oh, rats, this is going to stink. Because she's going to ask somebody else to move out of the aisle seat into the middle. And I'm going to be the big jerk who takes her seat, right? And I get the aisle seat. And meanwhile, she, this person gets cr crushed in the middle. And we got down. And uh, there was a seat in the premium section, which we know is first class. And she says, you can sit here. I thought, really? She said, yeah, you can sit here. And I, part of me, I just felt guilty. <laughs> right? Because I complained, right? So I said, okay. So I sat there and there. And, and you know, the, the flight is taking off. And then as, as they're taking off, the flight, a flight attendant comes around with, with the hot towel. You've been in first class before, you know? It's this hot, moist towel. And, I, and, and they're bringing it to me. And something deep inside of me just said, I don't want it. Don't give it to me. I don't deserve it because I didn't pay for this flight. I didn't pay for this seat. I felt like an imposter being there. But they brought the hot towel and I thought, okay. So I took it hesitantly and I wiped my face. I thought, oh, this is amazing, awesome, right? Okay. And then the meal came, right? And the meal is they come around with this big menu and they give you options and you can have cheese and wine and all these sorts of things. And I just thought to myself, she's not going to let me get the meal. There's no way she's going to let me get the meal. And sure enough, she came and she took my order. And I thought, I felt so guilty because I took the last cheese plate. And then somebody who paid for first class behind me ordered the cheese plate and they couldn't get the cheese plate. And I always, I wanted to stand up and say, have my cheese plate. Because I, I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I'm an imposter. And I've got to be honest, like it took to almost near the end of the flight where I finally kind of, I don't know, came face to face with myself and said, okay, Rob, you're here. You don't, maybe don't deserve it. Um, but you need to get over yourself. I had to come to terms with the fact that I didn't pay, didn't pay for it. I didn't deserve it. And the only reason I was actually there was because of the grace of the flight attendant. She told me to follow her. She gave me the seat. And I didn't do, need to do anything except to sit in it and to enjoy it. Even though I didn't earn it. And some of you are here today. And you feel like imposters in the kingdom of God. You might have secrets, you might be drifting, you might feel like you're coasting, 
and you feel to yourself, I don't deserve anything that God is offering me. And I'm here to tell you that that is 100% true. You do not deserve it. But I'm also here to remind you that it's paid for. That it was paid for through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for you on the cross of Calvary. And it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is not of works. And what has brought you here into this prime seating in the kingdom of God is not you, but it's Jesus, the good doctor who calls not righteous people, but sinners to repentance. And so if you're here today, you need to take Jesus at his word that his mercies are new every morning. And that includes this morning, this fine January 5th, 2020. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Isn't that good news? Yes, you're all, we're all sinful. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful. And he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, you are going to make mistakes along the journey, but don't quit. Take Jesus at his word. Receive his grace. Turn from your sin. Turn towards him, and he will be faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you. Then pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and continue in the journey. And so, friends, will you join with God in his vision over your life? Will you follow him, surrender to him, allow him to transform you, and just to see what happens in five years. Now, sometimes we need to get really practical here. And, and I, I just want to get really practical at the end. And I want to give you a moment of reflection. You see, to just say follow Jesus or be more like Jesus can be kind of nebulous. It can be vague. It can be a little bit hazy. And so I, I think my prayer today is, Jesus, would you show me how to follow you in this new year? What does that look like for me? How, what can I do so that I become more and more like you? What is going to contribute to my life transformation? You know, often I'll take a prayer retreat and I'll go away um, a couple times a year. And I'll, I'll have a real reflective time. I'll spend the morning in prayer and in fasting and in reading God's word. I'll spend a lot of time hiking through nature. And I'll, and I'll journal a lot. And at the end of the retreat, I end up with three questions. I funnel everything down into these three questions. What do you need to start doing? What do you need to stop doing? And what do you need to keep doing? And I wonder if we could just take a moment. We have this moment, okay, where we don't have to rush off. But if you could just take this moment, understanding what it means to follow Jesus in this new year, understanding that Jesus wants to transform your life in the next five years, what do you need to start doing? Let's start there. Let's bring that up. Take a moment and reflect on that. You know, you've got a bulletin. You could even write some notes here. Maybe it's setting aside time to seek Jesus. Maybe it's investing your time. Maybe it's putting yourself in places or relationships that will help you to grow. Maybe it's just actually trusting your life to Jesus. But for you in this new year, what do you need to start doing? And the next question is this, what do you need to stop doing? Maybe it's a destructive habit or a relationship. Maybe it's negative self-talk. Maybe you're believing lies. Maybe you have just a, an insecure false identity about yourself. 
Maybe it's wasting your time away in front of a screen. I just want to give you a moment to ask this question. What is it that you need to stop doing to become that vision of yourself in five years? Like right away, most of us know the answer. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to us. The final question is this, is what do you need to keep doing? You know, there are actually some things in your life that are, that are actually helping to grow your character. They're transforming you. They're bright spots in your life that maybe you just need to do more of. And this might actually include suffering. This might actually include hard times. Do you know that we are transformed? Our character is radically transformed. We're actually in the midst of suffering. So maybe God doesn't actually want you to run from suffering. Maybe he wants you to run into suffering that's already there and, and just trust him through it. But what is it that you need to keep doing? Maybe it's commitments or habits. Take a moment and think about that. So Crosspoint, will you join with God in his vision over your life? Will you follow him? Will you surrender him to him and allow him to transform you to become more like him? Who do you want to be in the next five years? Do you know that God is for you? And that as you journey towards him, he comes alongside of you and he helps you to become that person as you trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of ground this morning as we've considered who it is that you're calling us to become. And uh, Lord, we ask that uh, you would make that even more and more clear to us in, in the days ahead. And thank you, Lord, that uh, we are not alone. And thank you that you accept us and you invite us to come and to follow you and to give our lives uh, to you. And so, Lord, now we just, uh, we entrust all of this to you. And uh, God, we, um, we invite you to do the deep work in our hearts and our souls and our character that needs to be done, Lord, so that we can become more and more like you. Thanks for loving us, welcoming us, and accepting us. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.